This podcast is brought to you by True Voice. We're bringing you automated win, loss, and no decision analysis at scale so you can find and fix seller blind spots in near real time. With automated customer feedback from every opportunity, you'll uncover what buyers truly care about when purchasing, what your competitors are doing to adapt, and how the experience with your sales reps impact win rates. With this new insight, your sellers automatically receive the right science-backed sales training from Corporate Visions based on their individual strengths and weaknesses. It's time to get more from your win-loss analysis. True Voice moves you from just-in-case to just-in-time coaching and training. Visit us at www.truevoice.io and start winning more today. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for another edition of Sales Intelligence Weekly, brought to you by True Voice. I'm your host, Ryan Quelder. In B2B selling, your buyer's minds will wander during your presentation. That's just a matter of fact. Now, ideally, they won't wander so far that they don't forget that they're actually attending a Zoom call. <laughs> now, while mind wandering can have a positive impact on leisure or creative activities, it has negative consequences in communication because it is linked to less comprehension and reliance on automatic behaviors. This means that changing your buyer's status quo can be harder. On today's show, we're going to explore the latest research on what to do and maybe what not to do when the person's brain, whom you're trying to sell to, takes a break. I'm excited to welcome back a show regular and your favorite cognitive neuroscientist and chief science officer at Corporate Visions, Dr. Carmen Simon. Carmen, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much and uh, welcome everyone. I am excited to talk about the ubiquitous process because I'm sure that um, everyone's minds uh, wander and um, it is our job, especially in business, to bring the brain back. Now, I'm sure nobody on the call's mind has already started to wander that's listening to, you know, any audience members, their, their, their minds are locked into this topic and they have not wandered. But uh, to that end, maybe we should start with the definition. When we say mind wandering, what are we actually talking about here? It's a good place to start, especially as uh, we want to approach the concept from a science perspective. And anytime you approach anything from a science perspective, you want to define your terms. So I think a useful definition for all of us as we talk about mind-wandering, whether it's in professional settings, whether it's in personal settings, would be task-unrelated thoughts. So at work, especially, you're mentioning that you're involved in some projects and those require full focus, perhaps they're fairly intense. And um, at some point, voluntarily or involuntarily, your mind goes somewhere else that is not related to the task at hand. I'm sure that every single person on this call has experienced this. We would not blame you if you experienced it during this uh, session, because uh, from an evolutionary perspective, we have to go in and out and make sense of things. Okay. So non-task related um, ideas, thoughts, you know, frankly, when I, when I, saw this on the calendar and I got really excited about the show and about this topic because, you know, mind wandering for me is actually, uh, I use it as a break state when I'm working and I'm, I'm fully cognitively just locked in on a project or on a topic, it can really narrow the, the scope of my insight can be narrowed, right? I can become significantly myopic. 
And that is that can be problematic when you need to look at the big picture from time to time. And so for me, I'll take a break. You know, uh, I live near mountains. I'll go for a hike, a very slow. And it's not just because I'm I'm out of shape and have to go slow. It's because I want to go slow. I take a slow walk or meander through the the woods and consume everything that's around me. When I get back to the back to the desk, I feel like I'm more able to see more things. But that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. But how does mind wandering kind of kind of play out in the bigger picture? Not just as it pertains to non-task related items, but maybe in usage of uh, break state. I really like your wood uh, walking, and uh, you taught me that phrase. Uh, can you remind our uh, listeners about? Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, so it's in, in Japan. They have in, in Japanese. They have a word that translates into English like. Uh, forest bathing not not literally taking a bath in the forest but immersing oneself into the into the nature of the of the forest yes i uh, i love that state i'm sure that uh, anyone listening to this uh, would enjoy that state as well especially if most of your other hours are occupied with task related thoughts and um, we have to debunk some myths around the mind wandering because some people might associate it with the lack of attention Mm. But that doesn't imply that uh, being mindless, perhaps, would be a lack of attention and uh, do, being absent-minded would be that type of state. But mind-wandering, especially in the way that you're describing it, can be very useful to the brain because that could be very um, easily the source of creativity. That could be very easily the source of some stress relief. That could be very easily the beginning of well-being. And from that regard, mind wandering has proper benefits. Uh, sometimes I get the question, what's the difference between mind wandering and, uh, and meditation? And meditation, if you think about it, are you a meditator, by the way? Do you, do you meditate other than- Absolutely. Absolutely. I, maybe not sitting down in the perfect state of Zen, but I, I allow myself meditative state uh, from time to time. Yes. Yeah. So if we think about meditation, there are typically several kinds. I have the deepest admiration, by the way, for people who do meditate. I am not one. I'm an aspiring one. But for meditation, you can approach it in a way where you engage in concentration meditation, meaning that you're focusing on only one thing. Sometimes you will be instructed to focus on your breath. Sometimes you will be instructed to focus on just one symbol or one sound. And your attention is very much geared toward that. But you also have mindful meditation. And I think that this is what you're enjoying as your forest bathing, which is you're aware of some thoughts that are going through your mind and you just welcome them and then you just let them go. And perhaps some other thoughts are coming in and you welcome them and you just let them go. And um, I think it's it's that state that uh, could be very easily uh, be linked to, to creativity, which of course in business we often need more of. The situation gets a bit more dire when the thoughts that are not related to the task go toward rumination and go toward something that's uh, making you anxious and something that uh, now makes you a bit more tense. And you're supposed to be working on this thing over here, but your mind is over there. It's just going again and again. I can't believe she said that to me. I can't believe he reacted that way. And then this is what happened. And this is what I think I might do next. So you're just going along and again and again, instead of being focused here and productive, now you're over here engaging in something that's uh, that's especially negative. 
through the awake hours, by the way, how often do you think people's minds go in and out of the task at hand? Oh, that is a fantastic question. I'm going to take a, just a wild swing here. So are you asking per hour, per minute? What, what do you mean here? Yeah, so let's just say that um, if we have the ability to speak, to sleep for about eight hours, so that uh, leaves you quite a few hours to be awake and focused on um, on things. So if you're talking about uh, an hourly rate. Okay, hourly rate. I'm going to guess in and out of, in and out of focus, I don't know, m- maybe a dozen times, maybe, maybe 15, somewhere between a dozen and maybe 15 times. I don't know. You mean per hour? Per hour. That's um. That's not a. It's it's actually a very good uh, good guess because you you know we already talked about the fact that we have the tendency to go in and out, and I was surprised by the statistic a while back. So if we accumulate all of the hours that we are awake, some psychologists were calculating that um, the brain is not fully present about forty nine percent of the time. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yes, and um, some people hear the statistic and they think, oh, I would have thought it's even more because maybe sometimes our state is such that you feel lack of focus on the task at hand. And it's um, we're very lucky as a society that it is not more because otherwise it'd be very hard to evolve in some way. At some point, we do need to not only stay focused now, but stay focused for a prolonged amount of time. And out of the 49%, let's just round it up to 50 what do you think on average our thoughts go from the task at hand? Do they go toward the positive or do they go toward the negative? Negative. I, I, my guess is negative in all in a very high percentage. That's my guess. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So two thirds of that 49%, 50% is uh, spent um, on, on ruminations and um, these uh, negative thoughts that we tend to have. So when the brain wanders, tends to go to the woods and look for trouble, And this is why, as we bring it back to business, if you are able to create a stimulus, and that stimulus could be a conversation like we're having right now, or a presentation, or a video, a a business artifact of sorts, the better and the more focused gathering that stimulus is, the better people will feel about their life and about themselves, simply because you kept them away from themselves. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, can you repeat that What? Repeat that one more time. That needs to go up on the wall, maybe on a T-shirt. Can, can you repeat that one more time, please? So let's um, let's think about it this way. So if our prevalence is toward the negative, if somebody shows you something or does something with you or engages you in some way and keeps you away from your own thoughts, once that segment is over, you'll feel like suddenly there is a sense of relief. There is a sense of a tiny touch of, uh, of happiness because you are kept away from your own negative thoughts for that amount of time. So keep people away from themselves for a while and uh, they'll be very happy with you. They'll love you. They'll love you for helping them, you know, keep themselves safe by, or safe by keeping themselves away from themselves. Yes. That is a, like a dream within a dream within a dream. That is, that's, that is a big, that's a big thought. Why do people, I mean, why? I mean, is it because of the drifting goes towards the negative and if they're focused on something where it's positive and, and moving, is, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, so in the moment, you don't even have to always talk about something positive as long as you're keeping them away from the chaos in their own brains, which tends hmm. to 
quite often negative. And we can blame ourselves. We can blame others for going toward the negative and having that tendency because the brain needs to solve problems constantly. If I can solve problems, it will be very difficult to predict. It will be very difficult to anticipate what happens next and for me to be ready. And the, in the research that I've done about mind wandering, something that has surprised me is this, how much mind wandering is obviously dependent on many variables. Like it depends on the mood that you're in right now, depends on the level of the task that you're given. Remember how he said mind wandering task unrelated thoughts? Well, how difficult was the task and how equipped were you to even cater to the task? Um, distractions might, uh, might play a, a role as well. But here's a, a statistic that I found intriguing. I'm curious if you do too. If you tend to focus on the past and on others in your mind wandering, even though what you're looking at right now and the task at hand might be positive, you might end up in a negative mood. However, if you're focusing on the future and on yourself, even if what you're working on right now might be negative oriented, you'll end up in a positive mood. Tell me your reaction to this, because I'm curious to, to know how, how you're seeing this. 100%. And my therapist, um, you know, our, our marriage and family therapist, my wife and I, you know, uh, when we went, uh, so they would say that if you're, if you're constantly looking at the past and what has happened in the past, it's like trying to drive down the, the road, looking in the rearview mirror, which is dangerous and can, can create all kinds of uh, changes because what has happened in the past, our brain changes what the reality was that happened. But when you're looking through the windshield, driving down the road, there's potential for creativity. There's the potential of hope. There's the potential of whatever, right? So uh, I 100% agree and believe that, and, and also sometimes believe that that creativity can come through the form of um, action. And that's why I loved, um, when we're talking about mind wandering, there's a connotation of time. There, there's a timeline that's associated with, right? So movement of space and through time, it's not stagnant. And if we get stagnant, the stuff that happened in the past is, you know, it happened, therefore it's an event that's done, but our brain changes, we go to negative, it, it creates these weird things. Um, but if we're looking forward, there's that potential of creation. So potentially creativity could come out of mind wandering if it's forward looking it, it, it does that is that aligned with what you're talking about or is that is that out in left field oh absolutely and it's it's not just creativity but this creativity done in a good mood uh, i remember a scene from from a movie it was um will ferrell and um marky mark and uh you know they, i think they may be cops or they and they don't have the proper the skills. other guys the is other it the guys. other guys yes okay. yes yes okay. at some point Marky Mark is um, showing some dance moves just because he wanted to show off to a, a, a former partner, a former lover. And Will Ferrell looks at him and uh, Marky Mark doesn't have a, a happy expression on his face, even though he's busting these advanced uh, tap dancing moves. And uh, Will Ferrell says, wait a second, you, you learn to dance like this sarcastically? Like he was doing amazing things, but the, the, the state was negative. And imagine creative, a creative state, but also coming from a happy place. 
Mm. Not that uh, the world has not went witnessed a lot of uh, great uh, arts that came from a dark place. That's possible as well, and uh, we can still appreciate it. But why not indulge some some well being? And if we were to bring this back to a practical business guideline, then as you are creating content for your own audiences. How often do you bring them to the past? At some point, you have to recognize that there are some trends, there are some challenges that they may have been faced with before. The problem is that we shouldn't stay there for too long before you now paint a picture for the future and bring the focus to them being part or center in that future. So if you remember the statistics, they are about going to the past and speaking about others versus going to the future and speaking about yourself. So therefore, some of the guidelines that people may have even already learned from corporate visions, which are making the customer the hero, that could be very easily tied to this notion of if you are to take the brain and indulge it in some time travel, take it to the future and put it as the center of that universe. You have quite possibly the coolest job on the planet. What? what Carmen, what led you to this study? I'm I'm fascinated. What actually caused you to say, hey, I'm going to go check this particular idea of mind wandering out? I was noticing some, some personal habits, like I'll be at my desk and I'm sure anybody can relate to this and you will be typing something or you'll be engaged in a conversation even. And suddenly you find yourself somewhere else. And as a cognitive neuroscientist, already you appreciate the brain's ability to, to time travel. And you recognize that at some point you can take charge of where you go. And that's a voluntary time travel, by the way. So you're willingly saying, you know, this moment is not all that interesting to me right now. Why don't I go to Barcelona for a moment? And the beauty is that nobody will know. And if you are still in the conversation and you're still present, no one will know that you just went to stay into Spain and, and came back in a few split seconds. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And in fact, a lot of people will even associate uh, this ability to mind wander with the ability to fight against uh, boredom or some ennui that all of us would have at some point in, in business. The problem is that since we're talking about business, I've taken on this study because I recognize that mind wandering is something that all of your customers will do, no exceptions. So then it becomes our responsibility to bring the brain back. And I wanted to look at some techniques to see how is it that we can we can bring the brain back. First, I did the uh, the miniature study where I was simply asking, where does the mind wander more? Like if you are in on a Zoom call, are biased brains likely to wander more then versus if you gave them something to read on their own? And somehow I'm wrong about half the the time with my hypotheses. I really thought that the ebook would have led to more mind wandering simply because as I'm reading, there is nobody around to say, hey, look at here, look at this other thing to guide my attention in some way. So now the responsibility falls all on me. And if I don't have some rigorous habits for staying focused, I might be distracted a little bit more frequently. I'm sure every single person on uh, this in this conversation, no exceptions, would have read the same paragraph twice or three times. Right? You know, is, does that happen to you? All, all the time, of course, and especially when I have my email open and my cell phone's going off, and I'm getting Slack messages and uh, helicopters flying by and squirrel. You know, uh, so yes, I have to reread things all the time. Yes. So we're already used to that. And sometimes you don't even have 
of to have all of that stimulation that you described, just uh, a thought of your of your spouse having done something the night before that really annoyed the heck out of you, that pops into your mind. And now you're thinking about that one versus the paragraph at hand. So I really thought that the ebook was more in trouble when it came to mind wandering. And um, I was showing the opposite. In fact, people mind wandered more during a Zoom sales meeting than while reading an ebook that established some thought leadership. The topic that I had used for uh, that experiment was something related to AI and machine learning. So definitely something current. So it's not like we we're giving people something that was irrelevant for their own tasks. So that surprised me. So then I asked the question, okay, if, if the mind wanders, how do you bring it back? And one of the techniques that is um, suggested by the literature is to simply ask the brain a question. Anytime you ask the brain a question, the brain is mandated to answer. Do you think that's true? See, even oh. if you didn't answer verbally just now, but in your mind, like it cannot help it. You have to, you have to answer. You are compelled to, just like yes. I was compelled to go to Sagrada, La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona when you said, if, hey, let's uh, like, you know, if you traveled to Barcelona in your mind, I immediately went there and came back. So yes, were, I was yeah. compelled. I was yeah, compelled. You were there, a quick exchange of glance with good old Gaudi, and then now you're now you're back. That's right. And um, so I thought, okay, so asking the brain questions, that would be a, a good technique. But then, you know, science comes with nuances. This is why it is uh, such a beautiful uh, field to be, to be in. And I thought, well, do all questions bring the brain back? Is there such a thing as too easy of a question? Is there such a thing as too difficult of a question? And um, for anyone who is listening, if you're familiar with Bloom's taxonomy, uh, it was uh, created back in the 60s. And um, it is a framework that provides a hierarchy of difficulty in questions, because it is one thing to ask somebody, what do you have for breakfast? And it was it is another thing to ask somebody to synthesize the latest nutritional research that exists. So you see how now there is a there is a scale and um, there is some cognitive uh, hardship that can be associated with some questions. So per his taxonomy, you can start with questions that are related to knowledge. Then you go a little bit more toward comprehension because it's possible to know something but not fully understand it. Mm. Once you understand it, then can you apply it? Once you apply it, can you analyze that situation a little bit more? Once you analyze things, can you synthesize whatever that item is? And then you can go at the highest level, which is, can you evaluate what's happening within that field? So that's why I was giving the example of what you have for breakfast. So that's knowledge versus can you synthesize the latest research that's toward the top of the pyramid? If you're picturing this as a pure pyramid that um, has this hierarchy of uh, questions that uh, differ in their cognitive level. More recently, some people, since we're talking about creativity, have added creativity as being at the highest of the highest of the pyramid levels, because once you can analyze, once you can synthesize, once you can evaluate, now can you create something that perhaps has not existed before, but it's still related to this item that you're talking about. So I was looking to see if you ask the brain different questions that now tax our cognition either a little bit more easily or a little bit uh, in, a, in a hardship kind of way, in a more difficult kind of way, what impact does that have on bringing the brain back? So I don't know what, you know, Jedi mind tricks you just did right there, but now I, I am now again compelled. What did you find? I mean, ultimately, what, what, what was the result of the study? 
So I used it in both of the media that I described earlier. I use these um, this taxonomy for the various uh, levels of questions in both the ebook and the Zoom. Yet again, I was wrong because I thought if you ask a question to people on, on Zoom, then surely that just uh, reinforces the engagement. You know, you always hear this guideline, like keep people engaged while you're on a, on a Zoom call and surely questions can get you there. And um, versus the ebook, I thought that people would just kind of brush through the questions very uh, quickly and not pay that much attention. And um, the questions, by the way, had to be rhetorical questions just so that this, the study would be fair because as you're reading an ebook, there's nobody to answer your question. So in the Zoom call, when the presenter was delivering this material on AI and machine learning, he sprinkled in some of these um, self-reflection questions, like rhetorical questions, like one of them would have been um, describe AI in your organization. Mm. And then he would just pause for a moment and then he would just uh, keep on going. Or how do you make use of AI in your organization? That would have been like an application question. How do you uh, evaluate the value of AI? That would have been that evaluation, like all the way to the top of the pyramid kind of question. So uh, very nicely placed in between some other segments of giving the audience some data around AI and some insights and some practical um, solutions. And the surprise for me was that the self-reflection questions, not only were they better in eBooks than they were on Zoom, but they just so conveniently mapped toward, uh, mapped the Bloom's taxonomy that we now have. And it's a huge surprise for a scientist to see that something maps so easily. Usually we don't have such clean results. <laughs> you have to make sense of them a little bit more, but this is how the study went. So when we created these materials, Per corporate visions guidelines, the framework is this. You would tell your customers some trends and challenges in the industry. You're referring to the past. You're not staying there for too long before you're starting to build a vision, a vision for the future. What if you could do this other thing that, that would serve you better? So there is like a slight pivot point. Then there is a solution that you're expressing to show what that future might look like, where you are, you are the center. And then you have a follow-up in the end where you say, Given all of this information, would you be willing to meet with us again? Or if it was the ebook, would you be willing to access this additional resource? So that was the flow of the artifact of the sequence. And for the ebook, when we put in the beginning the trends and the challenges and associated those with just simple knowledge question, what is AI for your organization? That worked really well. And then as the ebook progressed and we moved on to the uh, solution, we asked an application question. Like as you're looking at the solution, how would this apply to your organization? And as we were finishing during the follow-up, and now that you know all this information, what's your, how would you evaluate the value of this for your organization? And would you be willing to follow up with us again? So those three things mapped just perfectly. Exactly the opposite happened on Zoom. So it didn't matter if you had application questions, knowledge questions, evaluation questions, self-reflection questions. I need to reemphasize that. People did not like that at all. <laughs> really? Okay. Why? Why? Does it have to do something with the, maybe with the ebook, it, it, you, you're consuming it in your own time and maybe there's not somebody waiting for a, a response immediately, but you can allow your, your, you have time and space to think that's without pressure. I mean, why, why does that happen? It's a, it's a strong question. And if I were to then hypothesize a bit uh, further, it might be because the moment that you're in an ebook, your brain is already primed for an activity. Like I'm here on my own. 
and I depend on my own resources. So therefore, whatever stimulus I have, I will cater to it that way because I'm already primed for it. So self-reflection question may seem natural. Whereas on Zoom, I wonder if we're breeding these uh, generations of, um, should we call them lazy viewers, who are primed to attend a Zoom call and now be given everything and not necessarily be invited to contribute with any additional cognitive resources. Like I now, if I see you as a presenter, I'm relying on you to give me everything. I'm primed for that activity. And the self-reflection question that gets me just uh, needing to give you something in return, like if nothing else but a, a silent answer, just is not part of that priming. Okay. So what do we do? I mean, cause at the end of the day, the zoom call exists and I mean, we're having this conversation literally on a zoom call, right? Yes. So, so what do we do to perhaps pull people's minds back from the wandering or help them engage more deeply in the conversation via zoom? Because we don't have the ebook to give them. The, uh, so first of all, the good news is that um, if uh, you're only relying on, on zoom, it is possible to start developing some extra assets that people can consume on their own. And in those, increase the level of uh, self-reflection questions that you're including as the ebook progresses. So look at those as viable sales tools if you haven't done that before. Also, what was intriguing about the study is that I gave the same brain, by the way, the ebook and, and the Zoom present sales presentation. And um, I wanted to see, because that's even a more accurate representation of how the same brain processes both. And what I was noticing is that people had a eureka effect both times. Mm -hmm. And that intrigued me because I was thinking, how is it possible that you just saw this information and suddenly you are faced with the exact same content? We did not change the content at all between the two. You're seeing this exact same content and you're still having a eureka effect. And it could be that we're getting this aha moment a bit differently from the different media. So a practical guideline that would suggest if ebooks are not part of, a, of your inventory, merge them with some uh, Zoom calls because the brain can still get that surprise moment, that aha moment in, uh, in, in, in both media. When I ask people, what do they prefer to consume? This was ahead of the experiment. It, experiment hadn't started, they hadn't even had the gear on. I simply asked them the question, if a vendor were to approach you with some sales materials, what would you prefer? Would you prefer that they reach you via Zoom call or would you prefer that they send you some materials that you can consume on your own? And people will state their preferences. But by now we already know that there is no match between what people consciously reveal to yourself and what they really uh, react to. And sure enough, in the study, there was no match between what their preferences were and how they did in that medium. Mm. So that too could be good news for, uh, for all of you. This is a long way to answer your very short question is what do we do about Zoom? I just don't want to dismiss the uh, potential that eBooks have that thought leadership of article that you may create because that can have some advantages. Let me, ask a knock, let, me, yeah, let me ask a knock-on question here. Does eBook translate? So if, if, um, if I'm going to be doing a Zoom call, does that if we don't have an ebook for the thing, does that translate into PowerPoint deck or articles or other information that might, you know, other materials, or does it need to be in ebook format? So if this was a, a PDF format, so if we're talking about like file types and even a PowerPoint presentation can be saved as a PDF, 
as long as it can be consumed on in a, in such a way that thoughts are completed, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has the same structure, in fact, as the Zoom call. It still has the same information as a Zoom call. This is what we had in our study. The two were like literally the same. Uh, you could probably keep them similar, but yes, they they seem to be complementary to each other, not contradictory or redundant. That's okay. what that's what surprised me. And it's not that people who would have preferred to be live with you will dismiss the the ebooks because, like in so many things in life, we had no idea that actually this other medium worked better for us, even though consciously we thought we preferred we prefer the opposite. And for Zoom, the one advantage that I did see compared to the ebook is that it does tend to keep people more alert. Mm. This was a statistically significant difference between the ebook and uh, and the Zoom. And then, so I had to go back and look at how did we design those materials to get that alertness? Because I'm sure that all of us, especially in business, aspire toward alert participants in our sessions. And the session was done in such a way that the presenter had a brisk pace. They weren't lingering around for too long around some some thoughts. Uh, there was a, a main message that was made very clear that should be remembered, and that message had no more than three supporting points. There was um, very crisp design that we used. So even though the material was quite technical, uh, we uh, had things presented in um, with some gradual animations where first you would be looking at this, then you'd be looking at that. The way that translated into the ebook, by the way, we kept fairly airy pages, like things were not smushed into each other. The design was very, uh, very welcoming, very um, Japanese, wabi-sabi like. They just uh, fairly down to earth, even though the content was uh, complex and technical. And also, I want to say, when we looked at um, at the content, we gave very specific and um, tangible, familiar examples. Like when we're talking about AI. One of the examples came from Hulu and how Hulu is taking advantage of these AI capabilities. Then we went to Uber, then we went to General Electric. So these things were very visceral, very visual and things that people can talk about even beyond the presentation. So next time that I'm, I'm thinking about my Uber, I'm going to think about this technology that the person was talking about and how it helps Uber so that you know where your driver, for instance, is in real time and now, not 30 minutes from now. And I think those elements helped in, in keeping the alertness. Okay. So those are the elements that help keep the alertment, uh, alertness. How do we practically apply this during a Zoom call? Whereas I'm getting into and doing my, doing my presentations, what are some best practices, um, you know, different from, for presenting versus other forms of content that you might, you know, offer your buyers what are some best practices that our audience members can apply during their sales presentation calls or Zoom calls uh, to help, you know, keep that uh, customer present and engaged? So before the, the Zoom call, take a good look at the materials that you're going to share and then ask these questions. Is it very clear what the main message is in this artifact? Is it very clear what some subparts for that message are like in this presentation we only had three main points so the person was talking about three capabilities that their ai solution had and they could have talked about a lot more capabilities but it was only those three and um, those three were related to some uh, trends and challenges that customers are likely to face so the content seemed very relevant 
and the design of this uh, of this deck supported these three points. So I knew when I was looking at point number one, I knew when that was finished. I knew when the like we literally called them one, two, and three. So there was no no confusion about these three capabilities. And um, what I also noticed is that on Zoom, the cognitive load falls more on the presenter versus the slides. Mm. at least in this study, we, we have the capability to superimpose after the fact the EEG signal that comes from the buyer's brain on top of the screen. And the screen, what is it composed of when you're in Zoom and you're sharing slides? You have the slides. And then in the upper right corner, you have the presenter. So across time, we can see where's the cognitive load going more frequently. And because the slides are fairly well designed and they included these visceral examples, these very practical and uh, familiar examples that I'm talking about. And this is a practical guideline for anybody who's listening. Make sure that your examples are such that anybody can understand them. And these practical examples, because they were familiar, didn't require a whole lot of cognitive energy. Like if I, if I speak to you about Uber or about General Electric, it's not going to, uh, to tax your cognition that much. So now the cognitive load is going to the speaker who obviously is moving and still presenting things and still explaining things. So another practical guideline would be for any kind of Zoom presenter to make sure that you have your script hands down, very well prepared and analyze your, your words, analyze your thoughts, analyze the concepts that you share and make sure those don't add the extra cognitive, uh, cognitive load, like make things easy to understand because the pressure will be on you. The slide takes very little energy to process and then people go immediately to you. That is powerful. Um, what I'm hearing you say is don't show up without doing your homework. I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> presenting, uh, and we talked about complexity in, in one of our previous episodes, you and I, presenting com complex presentations online, not via ebook puts a significant, uh, what, what I'm hearing you say is the study puts a uh, significant weight on the presenter's ability. Yes. And we're taking away cognitive load by simplifying and aligning to three main points that we're kind of pulling through the entire presentation. Am I, am I following? What, what did I miss? You're, you're definitely following. And uh, because we know that now if, if you're working with a team and they design the slides for you, for example, and you're already abiding by these guidelines that I'm sharing in terms of make sure that your solution is supported by some customer examples that are easy to understand, already you're easing the cognitive load. And that's, that's great. But then when you know that all eyes and all cognition then goes to you because they will have already finished processing that slide, then what happens? So that's why we have to be very critical and evaluative of ourselves. I would uh, definitely recommend that uh, all of us record ourselves for presentations that are really critical and then start listening so that the very profound question that you can ask yourself is, do I continue to provide cognitive ease to my audience? when all eyes are on me. This episode has been amazing. And for any listeners out there, the practical and tangible uh, practices that Carmen just brought to the table, if you haven't written those down, if you're driving, stop the car, write them down. If you're emailing somebody else and you're listening to this in the background, stop what you're doing and write these down. These practices I have seen in action. In fact, in fact, First time I saw Dr. Carmen Simon, uh, I was in, we were in, uh, at a conference and our companies had just merged 
and uh, I was walking down the hall and I saw a, a slide up on the, on the screen uh, and I heard a question asked and I was walking to another place. You stopped me mid stride and went, what is that? What is being talked about in there? And I literally stopped and went in it engaged and drew me right in. And I think now that you're laying all this framework out, I can see the framework that you employed during your presentation. So this was powerful. If you were to, if you were to give some any advice, if you have any advice for our listeners on how to do those, those, that practicing, you mentioned uh, reducing, asking yourselves questions like, is it, am I still easing the cognitive load and then doing a, a video what might be some things that you would look for as I'm doing my video that might indicate I am maintaining an easy cognitive load? I would look for this, uh, this thing that's easy to observe and measure, which is, am I building some mental images in people's minds as I speak? This is a, a powerful question because people need to see what you see, even though you don't have extra slides to show them, for example, but you're still talking about a concept. So in the Uber example, for instance, um, the application, the AI application was related to low latency. And um, if you're using just the right tools, this is how you're able to tell where your Uber driver is now, not 30 minutes from now. And see, even as I'm using those sentences, I don't have to show you the Uber app I don't have to show you a PowerPoint slide that shows that the driver might be here and now you're seeing it here because that example is already so visual in your mind. So one very practical way to ease people's cognitive ease is to have a cultural cognition, I should say, is to say, do you see what I see? And am I mm -hmm. making that easy? Powerful. Carmen, as per usual, thank you for being on the show today. This was a remarkably powerful and very tactical, usable episode. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, everyone. And listeners, for more information and to read this study, check out the show notes at www.primary-intel.com forward slash podcast. And remember, no deal is out of reach. We'll see you next time.